2: Every day we get older, and whether you're desperately resisting the march of time or embracing the ageing process, most of us would agree we want to live as long, healthy lives as possible. We'll be finding out how genetics research can help.
3: You wouldn't want to live forever if forever meant living in misery. You want to be able to enjoy the things that you normally enjoy to the extent you do now.
2: Plus, making fingers with Alan Turing, growing lizard tails and a long-lived gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for September 2014 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. It's a sad fact of life that we all get older. And it's not just wrinkles and grey hair. There are many diseases of old age creeping up on us, from dementia and arthritis to cancer and heart disease. Cheery stuff. At the UCL Institute of Healthy Ageing, researchers are investigating the genetics of ageing and how understanding the fundamental biological changes that happen as we age could help us live longer, healthier lives. I spoke to David Gems, Assistant Director of the Institute and Professor of Biogerontology, and started by asking him what we mean by ageing.
4: The word ageing is a very slippery term that causes a lot of confusion because it means multiple things. I mean, ageing can mean just that you gain more years, you know, just in in, in that sense, anything, everything ages, everything grows older in in the time, you know. Ageing can also mean, in a broad sense, any kind of change that happens over time. So, I mean, here's my coffee, and you could you could say that as my coffee gets cold over time, that's an age change, you know. And so um, in people, age changes can include all sorts of things. I mean, that can include maturational changes, changes in temperament, you know, and, and all sorts of things. But uh, the ageing that I'm interested in is the deteriorative aspect of ageing, which biologists sometimes call senescence to try to be clear about it. So, so the interest here is really in in the biology of senescence. Senescence is uh, something which is really not understood in terms of its biology.
2: This is the the kind of the gradual conking out of our cells.
4: People working on ageing on the biology of ageing still argue about what. how to to even define ageing, you know, there's different ways of defining it. I mean, I would say the thing which is really characteristic about ageing, that is senescence, is um, the development of pathology and pathologies that come from, from within. They're not caused by external things like germs or something. They're actually coming from within your own body. So there's some sort of process which gives rise to a load of pathologies. Those pathologies are you know, in the, in the developed world, really the main root re- cause of, of death.
2: So these are things like dementia, heart disease, all these kind of problems?
4: Yeah, I mean, numerically, the overwhelming cause of disease in, in the developed world is is, is ageing itself. And I mean, there are a lot of aspects of ageing people don't really think of as ageing, but they are. So for example, most cancer is actually uh, develops as part of the ageing process. And, you know, dementia, as you mentioned, a lot of Uh, type 2 diabetes tends to get worse with age yeah dementias like alzheimer's disease parkinson's and 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 others you know i mean it's bewildering how many pathologies there are it's 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 terrible really really.
2: and depressing
4: (laughs) yeah yeah right i mean that that, but i guess that's the human condition
2: so, what do we know in terms of, say, human bodies or or other animal bodies? What's going on at a cellular or a genetic level as cells or organisms age?
4: Mm. So, you know, one of the uh, as a biogerontologist working on the biology of aging, I mean, I can I can say with uh, with uh, some authority that you know we really don't know, uh, and it's actually one of the things which is very exciting about working on biology of aging it's the main cause of disease in the world and yet it's it's actually not known well there's lots of ideas and the state of play at the moment is there's you know there's a lot of research at the moment on the fundamentals of aging but um, there isn't really an agreement about what sort of process aging is so i think traditionally the, the most of the ideas about aging over the last 50 years have based in, uh, have been based around the idea of aging as a kind of a wear and tear type process. So it's a bit like machines that wear out.
2: Your parts so, get a bit rusty. Everything uh, stops working quite as well. Yeah, rusty
4: is rusty is exactly puts a finger on it because, you know, rust is is uh, metal oxidation, um, and one of the ideas is that you know we're we're living in this uh, high oxygen atmosphere, and the oxygen you know burns it, it, it. So you have a sort of a process of oxidation, and, and, and you know. In, in living systems, just like you do in mechanical systems. But um, I think in the last five years or so, this idea, I mean, there are many different theories kind of based around damage of one kind or another causing aging and how it happens, You know, including telomere shortening, you know, and chromosome shortening. It's a kind of a damage theory. Yeah, yeah your um, chromosome's just getting short and yeah, shorter get short and shorter and, and then shorter and then they can't then do anything the, else. That's right, then yeah. the cells kick out of the cell cycle. I think at the moment, I, I really think there's a there's been a kind of a, a watershed for this, this sort of aging damage uh, paradigm, uh, where where uh, people are starting to wonder whether it's really true, and there are some alternative theories that are appearing. So it's a very exciting period scientifically in terms of you know paradigm shifts and and so on. I, I think.
2: So if you say there's lots of different theories, so what one is your favourite one perhaps, and uh, and what are you trying to do in in your lab to understand this yeah. process a bit more?
4: So the main approach that um, my lab and quite a few others have been taking to try to figure out aging is to look at the genes that control aging so you don't really need to do any science to know that aging is controlled by genes uh, because different animal species have different lifespans that is you know their maximum lifespan Um, so if you take for example humans uh, and our closest relative the the common chimp our maximum lifespan is about double that of the common chimp so we've evolved uh, recently a much longer lifespan it just shows how genes control aging so what uh, what a lot of scientists are doing is using very short-lived animals like fruit flies like these nematode worms which is what i work on they're, they're called uh, the proper name is um senior elegans and they're great to study because their lifespans are very short so c elegans only lives about two or three weeks so you can look at the genetics of aging in c elegans you can look for uh, mutants for for, for uh, you know strains of worm where they're change genetic changes, uh, which have different rates of ageing, either that age more quickly or age more slowly. They're, they're in a way, the more interesting ones because they live longer.
2: So I guess in, in a worm, if you're getting one to live maybe a week longer, that's a really significant increase on a worm's lifespan.
4: Well, yes, it is. I mean, uh, for example, there's a group in Arkansas who are currently the record holders for sort of extending lifespan in worms. And I love it. It's a the,
2: competition. Yeah? No, it's true because I, I, I
4: feel strongly about this because I had the longest-lived worm a strain at one point. It was, a, it was a seven-fold increase in lifespan. And these guys in Arkansas, they've got a ten-fold increase now in lifespan. But uh, it's only a couple of months of life, extra life. And, you know, if you translate that to a human being, it's hard to know what that means. I mean, that could that's mean... 700 years? Is it, is or... it a 1,000 years? Or, or is it um, an extra four months? You know, it's, it's actually hard to know how to translate it. The bottom line, though, is that what this tells you is that ageing is actually plastic. And that's so important. I think we've almost... All the discoveries that have come out of, of this lifespan genetics, that basic observation that aging is plastic—it's not fixed. It is something that is alterable—is very, very profound, um, and has shaped, a, a, you know, a lot of um, a lot of thinking in the field and ideas about what the field can do. So, in terms of what we learn from that, I mean, what we hope was that we, you know, we find a gene that controls aging. And then we find out what that gene actually does, what what protein it makes, and what you know what's the kind of biochemical cellular process that that gene is affecting, and that should lead us to aging. You know what aging is.
2: How long would you like to live for?
4: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I I, I do find that um, one thing about working in this field is that I tend to always want to not think about the fantasy aspects, but think about the realities. Um, but I mean, if I had a choice, I guess I would, I guess I would like to be able to live long enough so that I could choose when to end my own life, you know. And I don't know how long I would want to live. I, th- I think uh, probably a lot would depend on how capable I was of reinventing myself and changing. And, uh, I mean, it's it's unanswerable. Who knows? Who knows?
2: That was Professor David Gems from UCL. Most of us are born with five fingers on each hand, but have you ever wondered how they get there? The answer was first put forward more than 60 years ago by mathematician and wartime codebreaker Alan Turing, who published a paper suggesting how molecules can interact to create stripy patterns, including the five stripes of bones that make up our fingers and toes. It's recently become clear that this kind of system is at work in developing limbs, but the exact identities of the biological players involved wasn't known. Now a team of researchers from the Centre for Genomic Regulation in Barcelona think they've found the answer. I asked James Sharp, who led the work, about how he tracked down these mysterious molecules.
0: So the main approach was to distinguish between the cells that are going to form your fingers and the cells that are forming the tissue in between your fingers. During early embryogenesis, when your hand is forming, the hand is in fact a continuous um, plate of tissue. And some cells will become fingers, and the cells in between these regions will become um, the gaps between your fingers. Although at these early stages, they're still cells. So it's just a decision between two cell fates, making fingers or making the gaps. And the goal was simply to find which molecules show any sign of having an on-off, on-off pattern between these two cell fates as early as possible.
2: So you're basically looking for things that are set up in stripes at this very, very early stage.
0: Yes, exactly. And they could be genes or, or proteins that are either expressed or active either in the, the cells that will become digits or ones that were only active in the cells that will become the gaps. It could be one way or the other. It doesn't really matter.
2: So you track down these molecules. How do you know that they are the ones that are responsible for, for actually making this pattern and telling the fingers to, to grow there?
0: That's a very good question. The critical thing to do is is to somehow make some predictions about what would happen if we manipulated these molecules to the pattern. So in addition to looking for the molecules, we also built a computer model, a computer simulation of the process, based on um, as much evidence and data as we could get. With the computer model, we then made predictions about what would happen If you slightly repressed one pathway or the other what would actually change in the 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 pattern of the fingers and then finally we were able to actually test that by taking little pieces of tissue very small pieces of tissue like less than one millimeter from early um, mouse embryos and culture them in a petri dish and actually apply drugs to reduce um, one pathway or the other or both pathways together And the very satisfying result was to see that um, when we did these experiments, they actually recapitulated the computer predictions um, very closely.
2: And obviously it's a a really nice thing to know that this is probably what's going on to be able to understand a biological system like that. But is there any way we can take it forward? How can this knowledge be be used? Is there any aspect of, say, human health or or tissue engineering that that could be useful Mm. for this?
0: In the long term, understanding how tissues build themselves um, is the only way that we will be able to do proper tissue engineering. What I mean by that is growing tissues in a dish, getting tissues to organize and build themselves so that they are functional tissues or pieces of organs or even whole organs. To be able to do that, we have to understand how the body normally does that. And that's essentially what um, this work contributes to. And unless we understand all parts of the story, all the, the basic principles by which tissue or, tissues are organised, we will not achieve um, what must be naturally the long-term goal of this work, which is to um, rationally, consciously design tissues in a dish for various kinds of regenerative medicine. So I believe that this is inevitably going in that direction, but it's also clear that it's going to be a long way in the future.
2: One of the names that you've mentioned is Alan Turing. Most people think of him as a computer scientist, a mathematician. It's interesting to see that he's actually made such a contribution to understanding of biology, even from so far in the past.
0: He was really interested in how complicated and clever machines, let's say, arise in nature in general. And this led to his interest in the brain and in artificial intelligence and how you can calculate things, how you can work things out, but also to how these amazing machines, such as the brain or such as a body in general, um, comes into existence in nature. So I think that from his interests, these two things were not so different
2: professor james sharp from the center for genomic regulation in barcelona and you can read my feature on turing patterns in biology for free in the online magazine mosaic at mosaicscience.com and now it's time for a roundup of the rest of this month's genetics news writing in the journal plus PLOS one researchers at arizona state university have analyzed the patterns of gene activity in regrowing lizard tails which could pave the way for better regenerative technology in human tissues in the future The scientists were studying the green anole lizard, which can escape from predators simply by losing its tail, then growing a new one over the next two months. But while lizards share many genes with humans, we don't share their incredible regenerative abilities. The team discovered that the lizards turn on at least 326 genes in specific regions of the regenerating tail. Some of these are genes involved in embryonic development and wound healing, as might be expected, as well as a biological signalling system called the WINT pathway, which is also used by other animals that can regenerate their tails, such as salamanders and some fish. The researchers also identified a special type of cell that's important for the lizard's tail regeneration, known as satellite cells, which are also found in humans. The hope is that understanding the genetic recipe at work in the lizard's tail might lead to new ways to regrow human cartilage, muscle or even spinal cord in the future. The day when we can grow fully functioning organs in a dish may have come a step closer as researchers at the University of Edinburgh have managed to create a mouse thymus in the lab. This is the organ responsible for making T-cells in the immune system and transplant it into an animal publishing their findings in the journal Nature Cell Biology the researchers took mouse embryonic cells called fibroblasts and used a gene called FOXN1 to turn them into thymus cells when these were mixed with other types of thymus cells and transplanted back into a mouse the cells organised themselves into a replacement organ that functioned the same as a regular adult thymus it's the first time that scientists have made an entire living organ from cells that were created outside of the body by reprogramming Although the work's currently still at an early stage, the scientists hope that their lab-grown cells could one day form the basis of thymus replacement therapies or even lead to personalised T-cells grown in the lab to help people with faulty immune responses. If you want to find out more about those stories, the references are all on our website. That's nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Katani. Still to come, we'll be finding out what progress has been made in treating neurofibromatosis and unearthing a long-lived gene of the month. But first, we return to our age-old topic at the UCL Institute of Healthy Aging. Student Michael Shannock has been studying fruit flies carrying an altered version of a gene called glycogen synthase kinase 3, or GSK3 for short, which have longer, healthier lifespans than their normal counterparts. He's been trying to find out why.
3: So the flies in this lab live um, normally uh, the best part of two to three months. Um, on average, the flies that we were working on with this uh, manipulation of this protein were living about 10-15% longer than the average fly.
2: So if you translated that to a human, that would be sort of uh, living an extra, I don't know, like 10 years, I guess?
3: Yeah, if you took a direct correlation to humans, it would be about 10 years. But of course, a fly is not human. But th- there's some other promising strategies as well, which, um, for example... You've got mice, and we've known this for nearly 100 years now, mice, if you give them about 60% of what they normally eat, they somehow live 30% longer. So that's that's quite nice. Obviously, we don't want humans to go starving themselves. Um, and there are some people who, who practice this. It's called calorie restriction. It would be nice to have a pill that does the same thing without having to actually physically starve, cut out things from your diet.
2: Because food is nice. <laughs>
3: Absolutely. We love to eat, food right?
2: Food makes me happy. <laughs> exactly.
3: We love to eat. We love to eat things that are normally not very good for us as well. So... It would be interesting to see if we could find a way of, of mimicking this restriction of calories um, in a way that doesn't actually affect the quality of life.
2: What exactly is the, the protein, the, the gene that you're looking at, that's faulty in these flies?
3: So this, this uh, protein is called jsk 3 It's quite central. It's, it's got a diverse range of things. So it controls... Survival of cells, so it actually promotes the survival of cells, which is great in in one sense. You but also, do you want you don't your wanna... cells
2: to live longer if exactly. you are going to live longer.
3: Exactly. So, if your cells are, are healthy and living longer, then obviously your organs will love, live longer and you will live longer. So that's the idea. Um, obviously, there is a danger that you don't want to have cells living so long that they're actually replicating and controlling because then you get into territories of cancer, which is not good. On the other hand, the same protein, J S three, also Controls cell death. So it can actually promote what they call the programmed cell death. So our body has ways of shutting off cells that aren't working very well. And actually the, the interesting finding, the main finding of my study was that this, this is both um, specific to different areas of the fly. So having more of this protein in certain areas of the fly is worse off and having it in another area of the fly is better off. So it's very tissue specific.
2: What have you discovered about it that, that makes the flies live longer?
3: So one of the things we were interested in, and this is something that's kind of common in, in aging research, is to try and stress test the things that you're working on. So you see how do they react to different stresses. It might be um, in terms of starvation, how do they react to starvation, so no nutrient at all. Um, and actually these slides were, were kind of sensitive to starvation, which was interesting. Um, then we also gave them um, a different stress in terms of what they call oxidative stress. So oxidative stress is, is basically in the process of breathing and respiration, producing energy from food, basically. You have a byproduct, this thing called reactive oxygen species. These are quite nasty chemicals that go out and damage DNA and, and just generally not very good. Uh, we have systems in the body that actually mop these up and kind of prevent the damage. Um, so we wanted to see, actually, do these flies have... Some kind of resistance to the stress, so when we tested it, and um, they were actually much more resistant, so that suggests there's there's something going on in the fly M- maybe the defense mechanisms defense systems against these um kind of bad chemicals are actually higher um we haven't done the test to see whether that's right, but these are kind of suggestive tests.
2: So you know they behave differently to starvation. You know that they have some kind of weird defence against these reactive oxygen species. And obviously that's in fruit flies. Is there any evidence that these processes might be similar in other organisms as well? Or is that for the future to find out?
3: Well, we know the calorie restriction, or what they call dietary restriction generally, um, has worked in everything from single-celled yeast all the way up to uh, mice for sure, and even some studies going on in primates. Um, which say that it could actually make them healthier. There's a, I saw a picture, you can see one is kind of grey and the fur is not very good and it kind of looks a bit wrinkly. And the other one, who's been uh, dietary restricted, looks much healthier and they're both the same age. So this is quite promising. And actually this whole thing feeds down into what we look at here in this lab, which is uh, the way that insulin reacts with our body.
2: This is the chemical that helps us process sugar in the body, isn't exactly.
3: it? Exactly. So insulin is produced, basically, when you eat, eat sugary foods, it, it helps to uh, take the foods that you eat and store it away for later use. So, so you don't want to have too much uh, sugar going around in your, in your blood. And we found that if you have less of this insulin going around, then actually you tend to live longer and healthier. And this works in both uh, worms, which worked on in this lab and also the fruit flies
2: so in terms of the story that you've been working on trying to put together what's going on in these flies with this particular mutation and, and why do they live longer what's next for this particular bit of work
3: well the next thing so we've done all the um what they call phenotype studies phenotype is just looking at the behavior so do they live longer are they more uh, are they able to climb better are they be to, can they move better with age um so you kind of study the differences in what you can see and then once you've you've Got those across? You can say, okay, um, I'm going to start looking at this um, in terms of biochemical studies. So that means um, testing: um, are they fattier than than the other flies? Because we find that when we have mutants to do with insulin, we find they actually are generally fatter than than normal flies. <laughs> so so we, how you so, tell
2: a fly yeah. is fat? <laughs> uh,
3: well, we uh, we do we have a test where we can test actually how much um, fat or lipid they have in them
2: <laughs> they <But laughs> no, they can't just get off the ground when they're trying to fly <laughs> no i mean uh, they
3: <laughs> yeah yeah they kind of just sit there and watch telly you know? <laughs> there are ways of you can do tests to, to find out how, how how different they are and and find out different changes at a genetic level what's changing because for example if they if they have more defense and um, there are genes that that actually protect us against um the stresses that we we have in our body and you can see if the stress that these genes have changed until see if they're the higher and that would make sense if they were.
2: How long would you want to live for? I mean you're you're a master student, you're a young guy, how long do you want to live for?
3: The obvious answer is forever, but the the point is <laughs> the, the point is you want to live as long as you enjoy the life you're in. Um, so you you wouldn't want to live in a forever if forever meant living in misery. You want to be um, able to enjoy the things that you normally enjoy uh, to, to the extent you do now. Um, so if I kept enjoying life as much as I do now, then the answer would be forever.
2: That was Michael Shanach from the UCL Institute of Healthy Aging. Now it's time for our question of the month. Listener Anne Hawke says, When my son, who's now 23, was 15 months old, we discovered that he had neurofibromatosis type 1, or NF1, also known as von Recklinghausen disease. At the time, we were told that the next 15-30 to years would see important developments for sufferers, but I'm not aware of any developments that could help. Please could you give me an update on the situation with this condition, which I believe is the most common genetic disease, but one that often doesn't make any headline news. Well, NF1 affects the nerves and it causes a range of problems in the body, including both benign and malignant tumours. To find out more about the current state of treatment and research, I spoke to Rosalie Ferner, Professor of Neurology at King's College London, who runs the Neurofibromatosis Service at Guy's and St Thomas' Hospital.
1: A lot has happened since I started being involved in the late 1980s. They found the gene at that time, so they know where the gene is, and they found a bit about the function of the gene. The gene product is really this tumour suppressor, so simply stated it keeps... Cells controlled so it stops them growing too much and dividing too much. The research has gone into a number of areas. Um, it's gone into learning problems which is one of the commonest manifestations of the condition. It's usually mild learning problems. Um, research has gone into tumors both benign and malignant and it's gone into bone. I think those are sort of the big areas and the two things that are being done they're looking at underlying molecular mechanisms so that they can target treatment to the particular problem and they're also looking quite carefully at something that's not quite so buzzy but very important is outcome uh, measures So it's no good having a treatment if you don't know how to measure whether it's been beneficial or not. When you look at outcome measures, you want to look at things that are objective. You know, have you shrunk the size of something? Have you improved intelligence? But importantly, you want the patient's point of view because that doesn't always coincide with what you see as an improvement.
2: Have there been significant advances in treatment for these types of tumors and diseases?:
1: Yes, they're starting to come through, and I think one always needs to be cautious. So um, if you take, for instance, the benign neurofibromas, the lumps. They cause a lot of problems because they're cosmetically difficult, they can cause neurological problems, they can cause pain and bleeding. They've used mouse models, because they're very good models for disease, to screen potential drugs that may block these rather complex tumour formation pathways. There have been a few drugs that have tried with limited success, there is a new drug called a MEK inhibitor. A MEK is just one of those signals on the pathway that activates tumor formation. Very early results suggest that this shrinks uh, neurofibromas a little. I wouldn't say massively but a little so it's promising. So the hope is to increase the clinical trials for that. Uh, From the point of view of learning um, they've tried Statins, uh, as you know, statins are buzzy for lots of reasons, but um, it was thought, again, from the mouse models that statins might help with improving learning. And they've done a a couple of trials on children, and so far there haven't been huge uh, beneficial results. What this is saying is that it's a huge step forward to understand a bit more the molecular mechanisms understanding complications. These are early stages in treatment where people are trying drugs that are blocking bit, different bits of this very complex pathway. There are treatments available. Are they effective? Well, at this stage, it's quite early to say. Thanks
2: to listener Anne Hawke and Professor Rosalie Ferner. If you've got any questions about genes, DNA and genetics, you can email me at genetics at And finally, it's time for our Gene of the Month, and it's Cert 1. One of a family of genes called Sertuins, sirt one is one of seven human versions of genes found across pretty much all organisms from bacteria and yeast upwards. Sertuins seem to have a role in a variety of vital processes within cells, many of which are connected to energy production and ageing, as well as stress responses and the body clock. And, as you might expect, they've also been implicated in a range of diseases including Alzheimer's, diabetes and cancer. Scientists studying ageing are particularly interested in CERT1, as it can be switched on by chemicals such as resveratrol, found in red wine and red grape juice, and significantly extends lifespan in animals in the lab. Unfortunately, this research doesn't quite support the idea that necking a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon every day will do you much good. That's all for now. I'll be back next month with more of the latest research into the genetics of ageing. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can email me, genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can get in touch through the Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.